0: to 19 and this can be found at uh, page twenty two of the church Bibles and it should be on the screen behind me. Some time later God tested Abraham. he said to him, "Abraham, here I am he replied. Then God said. "'Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, "'and go to the region of Moriah. "'Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering "'on a mountain I will show you.' "'Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. "'He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. "'When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, "'he set out for the place God had told him about.' On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw a place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham said in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, Lizzie, thank you very much for that reading. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. It's Genesis 22, which is on page 22 of the Bibles. Um, For those of you that were here last week, well, this might be a strange sense of deja vu, because this is the exact same reading we had last week. And just to reassure you, it's not us losing the plot, and this isn't some strange waking dream that you're part of. We are doing this passage again. Um, And we're looking at it from a completely different perspective, however. For those of you here last week, you'll know that uh, we began a series looking at the founding fathers of the faith in the book of Genesis. And actually, I think I began by testing you to see who knew them all. And then tell me who the first one is. We've just read Abraham. Who's next? Who's after that? Who's also called? Great. And who's after that? Not so confident there. Joseph. Great. We're getting there. By the end of this, we'll have them rattling off. And actually, we're looking at each one of these founding fathers of faith and looking at how actually their examples, both positive and negative, can inspire us and teach us for our walk with God today. Because the same God that was involved in their lives, that called them into a living and loving relationship with him, is the same God who is here present today, the same God who we've just been worshipping, and the same God who will be there tomorrow and the day after. He hasn't changed. So the lessons we learn from these guys' lives are lessons for us as well. Before we dig in, let me pray for us. Well, Lord, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it divides between the division of soul and spirit that it judges and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we pray that your word would do so here in this place afresh. We come under it, we pray by the power of your spirit, you'd speak to us through it. In your name we ask this. Amen. Like I mentioned, we're going to tackle this passage from a slightly different perspective to last week. And the perspective is this. We're going to read this passage and see where Jesus is. Where is he in this passage? If you read this passage, his name isn't mentioned once. We didn't mention his name. But actually, Jesus himself says passages like this. And actually, the whole of the Old Testament are all about him. He's the subject of the passage. And that's quite a big claim because he's not mentioned here. He's not mentioned anywhere by name in the Old Testament. And yet, when he comes along, he says, it was all about me. You missed the point. It was about me. Let me read from John chapter 5, where he says to the experts in the scriptures, he says this, you diligently study the scriptures because that by them you think you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify to me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's talking about the Old Testament here, and he said, they testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me, the one they're pointing to that you might have eternal life. A sure and certain warning for us when we read the Old Testament that we are to find Jesus in it. We are to see where he is, that we might come to him and receive that life he promises. You'll know on the road to Emmaus where the disciples who were completely distraught after the cross thought that everything had gone wrong were walking away from Jerusalem. But this strange figure saddles up alongside them and starts talking to them and asks them, What's up? What's going on? And they say, I'm the only one that hasn't heard what's been going on. There's this person called Jesus who seemed to do wonderful things, and we thought he might be the Messiah. But sadly, he was crucified. Yet some of our women, they said that he's been raised from the dead. We don't know what to make of this. And what did Jesus do? He said, you foolish of heart and slow to believe. Was it not that the Scriptures foretold this in advance? And then he took them through the entire Old Testament and explained how all of it was about him and his death and his resurrection. And they still didn't get it. They only got it, actually, in the breaking of the bread, where the scales fell from their eyes. And they said, oh, we've been such idiots. The scriptures always told us about this. We just missed it. And they said later, later, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures. And I pray that that might be our experience as we do this this evening. That actually we realize that every single one of these pages, and I want you to flick through the Old Testament. It's the majority of the Bible. It goes all the way up until Matthew. Every single one of them has one subject in mind, really. And that's the person of Jesus. They are all to point towards him, creating anticipation, revealing things in advance, and actually... Supposed to create great joy when finally he comes onto the pages. That oh, the one that we've been waiting for is here. And I'm going to use an analogy to try and explain this this evening. And that is of this. So this isn't Brighton Rock, this is actually South Sea Rock. And you can buy this all over the beachfront. And um, if I open it up, I don't particularly like rock actually, but... Um, You can just about read. Fran, what does it say there? Can you read what it says? Do you need glasses? South Sea. It says South Sea, cunningly. It could have said all kinds of things. The rocks come with all kinds of words in the middle nowadays. And the thing about rock and the words that are printed, and you'll know this very well from misspent youth probably, that wherever you cut this rock, wherever you snap it, that same word is seen all the way through, isn't it? Here it's going to be South Sea. I want to say the same is true with the Bible wherever you cut it through, even if it's before Jesus came, you should see his name. You should see what he's done. It's supposed to break open and you find Jesus. And we're going to do that with this passage tonight. And I want to suggest there are two key ways that we see Jesus in this Old Testament passage, that it's all about him, actually. It's actually all about him, not Isaac, not Abraham. It's about Jesus. And the first one is this that actually Jesus is seen in complete sacrificial obedience. He's seen in complete sacrificial obedience. You see, you'll know from last week if you were here that this is the greatest ask of God that Abraham had ever received. Abraham had been asked to do all kinds of things in his lifetime. At the age of 75, he was asked to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in modern-day Iraq, And travel towards a land that was promised to him, modern day Palestine and Israel. And as he traveled there, he was given another promise. As soon as he got there, really, that actually, even in your old age, at the age of 75, you're going to have a child, specifically a son who he'd been asking God about. And Abraham thinks, how is this possible? I'm 75, my wife, bless her, is also fairly old and uh, not quite at the age of bearing children. How is this possible? And yet God shows his faithfulness through ups and downs and eventually, actually at the age of 100, 25 years later, Abraham receives Isaac, the promised child. And Isaac's name means he or she laughs because there's laughter. There's laughter because they didn't quite believe it could happen, and then there's laughter when finally Isaac arrives. But then, and we think this is about 13 years or so after that, God asks Abraham for something very difficult. Verse 2, let's read it together. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you about. It's by far the hardest thing he's asked God, God has asked him to do. Much harder than leaving his home. Much harder than believing a promise of a child. Much harder. But he's to take Isaac and sacrifice him upon a mountain. And note the emphasis. It says, take your son, your only son. It's true. His only son through Sarah at this point. Whom you love. This wasn't an understatement. He absolutely adored him. He'd been waiting for him for years. This was the child of promise. This the child of destiny through whom his family name would be continued, flesh of his flesh. This was a big ask. He was called to sacrifice him to God. And the immediate question is, why would God ask him to do something like this? This seems malevolent and capricious and just unkind, Well, the clue is in verse 1. It says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. This was a test. This was a purifying test to see and reveal Abraham's heart. You see, Isaac was so important to him that it had a danger, that great promise of a child and then fulfillment of that promise of replacing God." in Abraham's heart. Abraham's life no longer became about obedience to God and following him. God then started to come second. And the most important thing was Isaac and making sure that he was looked after, making sure that he continued the family, making sure that he prospered and did well. And for those of you that have had children, you'll know that there is that temptation when you have children, that they come first above everything else. And it's a testing time when God sometimes says, no, I come first, even then. Even then, I come first. And this was a test for Abraham. Who was first in his heart? Was he an idol worshipper like the people he'd left behind? Or had he come to worship God and God alone? Well, we read the answer is that yes, he passes the test straight away. Verse 3 says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac and they set out to the place that God told him about. It says, early in the next morning, no doubt he had had a sleepless night wrestling with God, asking God, saying to God, why? No doubt some of the Psalms of Lamentations that we were looking at this morning echo what he cried out to her. God. why? Why would you do this? He gave me this promise only to take it away. Are you a God that likes child sacrifice? Would you do such a thing? Surely not, surely not. No doubt there was a wrestling going on that night. But come the morning, he's chosen to be obedient. He's chosen to say, God, no matter what, I don't quite understand it, but I'm following you. And no doubt there are times in our lives where there are things that God asks us to do. Sometimes clearly explained in his words, sometimes through the leading of the Spirit. We're tempted to ask, God, surely that's not you. Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. That just doesn't make sense, Lord God. And no doubt wrestling moments. And there's a test, a testing time. Who will we follow as first? Who will we be obedient to? Verse six. It says that when they got to the mountain, they left the servants behind, and only Abraham and Isaac went to the place up alone. Abraham knows he has to do this personally. He can't leave it to someone else. If he left it to someone else where he might change his mind, he has to be the one that does this. In verse 7, it seems that Isaac knows something is up. Isaac speaks up and says, Father, and Abraham says, Yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You see, this indicates that they'd probably done this a few times already. They'd offered sacrifice to God in their past, together as father and son. They'd built the family altar of prayer and worshipped to God. And Isaac knows the pattern. The pattern is, you bring a lamb, you nicely but gently lead it (laughs) up to the place of sacrifice. Unfortunately for those of you who are a bit squeamish, you would then cut its neck, and then you'd burn it as a sacrifice and a worship of offering, something precious to you, given to God, to say how much he is worth. Isaac knew this. And he's utterly perplexed. Where's the lamb? It's just you and me, Dad. Where's the lamb? And Abraham, prophetically, with faith, says, the Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews, looking back on this, said that Abraham believed in his heart that God could even raise the dead, that even if Isaac was to be the one sacrificed, God could still raise him up. He believed that the Lord would provide. All he had to do was to be obedient in this. The Lord would provide. And that's what Abraham does. He binds Isaac to the altar. Isaac, you've got to wonder at this point, what's he thinking? And then he takes the knife and he gets to the point of actually plunging it into his only son. And then heaven erupts the angel of the Lord, always representing the Lord himself, says, Stop! Do you not lay a hand on the boy? Do you not do anything to him? Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. It was abundantly clear who was first in Abraham's heart. Abundantly clear. And because he'd been obedient, he received God's blessing as a reward receive Isaac back, and there was a ram that was given as a sacrifice instead. And actually, God reiterates the covenant that he had made with Abraham. You see, in the book of Genesis, God makes a promise with Abraham. He makes a promise about the land, that this land that you tread on is going to be yours. He makes a promise about his children. You're going to have many children, as many as the stars in the sky, But he hasn't made this third one yet, and he expands this promise and says, verse 17, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and then, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God increases the promise increases the blessing to include his offspring being a blessing to others, all because he'd been faithful in obedience. Now, that's a wonderful story and very inspiring for us, but the question is, where is Jesus in this? Our original question, we should see Jesus in this. And I want to say that as we read through this account of Abraham, his unswerving obedience to God to the point of sacrifice, surely it's clear. Surely it's clear where Jesus is. Because he is the one who is obedient unswervingly to the point of sacrifice. And for him the sacrifice was real. The knife wasn't stopped. He gave his life. And for him, for him of course, the reward was great. The reward was the nation's. His heritage is you and me and every single one of us as his possession. And that promise that God gave to Abraham, that through your offspring all the nations will be blessed, that spoke of him. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the one through whom the nations would be blessed. We know that in his earthly life, Jesus was asked to give up the thing most precious to him his intimate. Infinitely deep, loving union and communion with God. That instead of that, on the cross, he would experience God's displeasure at sin. That at the cross, he'd experience what we deserve. And we know that the night before that, Jesus wrestled with God in prayer, just like Abraham probably did. In Gethsemane, saying, If it is possible, please could you take this cup from me? Yet not my will, but your will be done. He said it three times. He wrestled. And yet we know when the morning came, he was resolute. He went to the mountain, he gave himself as a sacrifice. But there on Calvary he stood on our behalf. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God was pleased to exalt him to the highest place. That's where Jesus is. He's right there. He's right there. He's right here. And of course, the question is, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, I'm going to go back to my picture of the rock. Because if anyway you go through the Bible, you can see Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross. I want to say It continues because this is the picture of God's people in the Bible. And perhaps it goes all the way up until there, and the Bible ends. But what happens after that? Well, it's the rest of the history of God's people. And that carries on and carries on and carries on. And it should be true even today that wherever you take a cross-section through God's people and their history and relationship with God, what should you see? What should you see? Well, the very same thing, I think. Jesus, his name, his sacrifice, pointing towards him in all that we do. The big things, the small things, our sacrificial obedience pointing towards someone who is even more obedient and gave even greater sacrifice. Our witness that points to someone else that's written in our hearts, that points towards him. For many of us, this will be in a thousand small things rather than a big thing. It will look like the sacrifice of choosing what he wants over what the world wants. I was talking today, I had some friends who are both atheists who have stayed with me for the weekend. I got to know them at university, really close friends. And hearing about the workplace and hearing about the temptation that actually just fudge something here. One of them is a lawyer. Just fudge something here. Or just leave something behind so that actually the company does well. And that actually you get more money. And they're saying we're wrestling with this. We're wrestling with this. We want to do what is right. And these were atheists saying it. And for some of us we're in workplaces where there's the temptation to fudge things. To just just not quite be as diligent to just ignore a few things. And yet, the sacrificial obedience of Christ says, no, obedience to him is going to cost, but it's going to point towards me. In other places, it'll be in the family. It'll be choosing his way over other people's ways. It'll be in relationships where you're pulled in one direction, and yet God pulls you in another And may his pull be stronger. May his pull be stronger. And for some of us, it may be that there are going to be Abraham-like moments where God asks you very specifically to give something up, something very precious to you. I've only had it happen twice in my life, but they're testing times. And it may be that you're in that at the moment. Can I encourage you? Look at his example And then look at Jesus' example and see what God has done. I'm going to end this bit with a story. I didn't know that Gay was going to choose a song from the worship block today that's from the early vineyard days. Um, The vineyard church was a church that was planted out of America by someone called John Wimber um, back in the 80s. And John Wimber actually was a well-known musician at the time. Uh, He was part of the Righteous Brothers. Anyone heard the Righteous Brothers? Anyone admit to owning some of the albums? No, I think some of you do and you're hiding it. Well, he found that God had asked him very early on as a Christian to do something absolutely absurd. To actually give up all his music to stop being part of any musical acts and to simply wait on God and see where God would lead him. And he even felt led by the Lord to take all of his music, all his CDs, all his records, all his sheet music, and to get rid of them. This was very specific to him. And so he put it all in the back of the car and drove to the tip with his wife, Carol, opened the back of the car and shoved it all out onto the tip. His wife said that there and then the Lord spoke to them through a verse in the Gospel of John that says, if a grain of wheat remains alone, it won't bear fruit. That was an ad lib. But then the actual scripture, if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will not be alone, but it will bear much fruit. And then and then, actually, God did something remarkable. The very next week, God started to fill John Wimber's heart with songs of worship that had never been written before. He started to write them at a prodigious rate. We still sing some of them, actually. And actually, the church that he began to plant was, was, became very well known for their worship music. And they do even today. And actually, the songs that were written out of that particular time are songs that have stayed and remained. And we sang one of them, Jesus' holy and anointed one, earlier. That actually, because of his obedience, willing to sacrifice, God was able to build something bigger, something more precious, out of that death-like moment. Just as with Abraham, building the Old Testament covenant out of that moment of sacrifice, just as with Jesus and just as he might do with us. So if you find yourself, or if you ever find yourself there, be assured that this is what God does. He may ask us to sacrifice, but the reward, the blessing, what he will do in the long run, is much greater. Well, that was the first way of seeing Jesus in this passage, that he's there as the one who is obedient to the point of sacrifice. I want to say that, however, there is a second way have seen Jesus in this passage. It's not limited to just one. And the second way is that we see him as the substitute for the sacrifice. And many of you will know this one. You see, going back to the passage, verse 8, Abraham prophetically says, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering to Isaac's query." Now, I don't know if anyone's picked up the fact that what does actually God provide? Is it a lamb? No. What does God provide? Say it out loud. It's a ram. Now, I'm not very good with my animals, but I'm pretty sure I know the difference between a lamb and a ram. And they're very different in terms of temperament. A ram is boisterous and quite aggressive, a lamb is meek and mild. This wasn't a confusion. (laughs) This wasn't Abraham getting it wrong. There's something very profound going on here. Abraham is prophesying that actually there is a lamb to come who will be provided as the sacrifice. It's interesting that the Jewish people, centuries later, on this very mountain by tradition, built the temple, the temple at Jerusalem. And there, lambs were offered every single week as sacrifice as burnt offerings to God as part of the system of their approach towards a holy God and God's living with them. And yet, I don't think that's the lamb that's being talked about. That was man-made. That was foreshadowing something much greater to come. And for centuries, this mystery had persisted. Who's the lamb that's going to be provided? Where is it? It's not the ram. It's not anything that we're doing. Where's this lamb that Abraham talked about? Father Abraham, Father of the Jewish nation. And of course, we know exactly where that lamb is. At the beginning of John's Gospel, John the Baptist, walking along the shores of Galilee with his disciples, stops them in their tracks, points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb. That Abraham was speaking about Jesus. Abraham might not have known it. He was saying, God will provide and the ultimate provision for us will be Jesus, who would be Isaac's substitute, who would be his substitute, who would be each and every one of our substitute on that sacrifice altar. Because you see, every single one of us, every single one of us, no matter who we are, deserves what Isaac was about to get. The Bible says that God's judgment is clear. That we've done wrong. You may think we've not done much wrong, but relative to God, we've done a lot of wrong. And that because we've done wrong, well, God is a just God. We wouldn't want a God who wasn't just, who wouldn't set things right. And yet... He's also a loving God. The two don't find conflict, they find fullness in him. And because he's a loving God, he says, no, they're not going to have the knife come down on them. I'm going to take it instead. I'm going to take it instead. And so in the person of his son, Jesus, he comes as a substitute for us, the Lamb of God. And he offers himself as the sacrifice on the cross. And understanding this, seeing this, opens it up to us like when you suddenly realize the picture behind one of those magic eye puzzles. Because as you read it, you realize, oh, it's speaking about Jesus at the cross. That when Abraham spe- is told, take your son, your only son whom you love, of course, that's God's only son whom he loves, who's given as a sacrifice. When they head up to the mountain, Isaac has the wood placed across his shoulders to carry up. Oh, who is that? (laughs) Of course, that's Jesus taking the cross to Golgotha, the hill of Calvary. When Jesus lays his life down on the cross and God rewards Abraham for his obedience and says, surely I will bless you and make you a blessing to the nations. Well, again, that's Jesus' blessing. That he really was raised back from the dead. And the blessing he received, received was the worship of each and every one of us from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's him. This is all about him. And if this is true, if this is true, and I think it is, well, the implications are very clear. I earlier asked if anyone hasn't put their trust in Christ, to do so and it's great and we welcome you if you have but if you still haven't this is what Jesus did for you he took your place he loved you that much he took your place he didn't have to but he did and he wants you to know it he wants you to know him and for those of us that have known this well the implications are clear as well you see Abraham what did he do after this Well, he wrote it down in a book. He wrote down an account and said, this is what my God is like. He's the one who provided for me. Yes, I was pushed to the point of sacrifice, but yes, he is faithful. And he provided the substitute. And therefore, what's our response? We might not write it in a book, but we will tell others. Of course we will. That this is my God. He might have pushed me to the point of sacrifice, but he's provided for me. And ultimately, he took Jesus to the point of sacrifice. And yet he provided for each and every one of us a substitute, a blessing for our salvation. Abraham wasn't ashamed of it, despite what it might look, make God look like. And neither should we be. This is our God, this is what he's like. I'm going to end there. Because after a moment of response, we're going to come to the meal that actually Jesus said is the best way of remembering and partaking in these things afresh, the Lord's Supper. And we welcome all who know and love the Lord to take of it, the bread that represents His body given as a sacrifice for us, the blood which was shed for us, all these things that we deserved, we deserved. He did. He did. Okay, I can' invite you to stand, I'm going to pray for us, we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for how we see you in this story of Abraham. We want to thank you for your perfect obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. Lord, we're humbled by it. We want to imitate you. Make us an obedient people. And Lord, we thank you that you are the one who took our place, that you are the Lamb of God, slain for the sin of the world. Thank you you took my place. Thank you that you took the place for my dearest friend. Thank you that you took everyone's place. And we pray that the nations will know it, that through Abraham's offspring, the nations will be blessed. Strengthen our witness, embolden our hearts to speak of what you've done. Amen. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for the confidence, the boldness we have now in life before your throne. And we pray that as we've been considering these things and meditating upon them tonight, would you seal your words in our heart and would you bless us as we leave this place. The peace of God which passes all understanding Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be upon you, remain upon you now and always. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ. Amen.